You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. I'm beginning the last section on Michaelmas, or Michaelmas. Uh, it is the 23rd lecture in the series, and it will have uh, begin with the Michael meditation and then go on to the what is regarded here as lecture number two, but it's really the first lecture after the meditation. And it, it the uh, the Michael meditation that I will read first was given uh, in Dornach on the 28th of September, 1924. And this first lecture after that is called the Michael Inspiration. Spiritual Milestones in the Course of the Year, given in Stuttgart on the 15th of October, 1923. And so to begin with, the Michael Meditation. Springing from powers of the sun, radiant spirit powers, blessing all worlds. For Michael's garment of rays, you are predestined by thought divine. He the Christ messenger, reveals in you, bearing mankind aloft, the sacred will of worlds. You, the radiant beings of ether worlds, bear the Christ word to man. Thus shall the herald of Christ appear to the thirstily waiting souls, to whom your word of light shines forth in cosmic age, of spirit man. You, the disciples of spirit knowledge, take Michael's wisdom beckoning, take the word of love of the will of worlds into your souls aspiring actively. Now number two, the Michael Inspiration Lecture. What I have to say to you today will be expressed in the form of pictures drawn from the imaginative life, which is the expression, the revelation of the spiritual world. The human being's whole existence and activity is interwoven with the spiritual world. We know from the many and varied descriptions that have been given here that an abstract manner of speaking such as is applied to external sense-perceptible nature, cannot be used in speaking of the spiritual world if actual manifestations of that world are in question. We know too, however, that the manner of speaking we must then adopt is no unreal one, but on the contrary, one far more real than the logical abstract speech we employ to express merely natural truths. This I wanted to say about the attitude to be adopted in what I shall now put before you. When we penetrate with spiritual vision beyond the physically sense-perceptible world, there reveals itself to us a world of spirit. In that world, we feel led to make use of the phenomena of the physical world as pictures, with which to express what is spiritually revealed to us. 
So let me now put a picture at the center of our considerations, one which is in truth a deep reality. Mankind, throughout its evolutionary history, has always been guided by impulses from the spiritual world. Those who could see so far found these impulses engraved, as it were, in a spiritual light, indicating the direction they should take. What is thus found in the spiritual world might be compared with the signposts of the physical world, yet they do not, of course, have a pointing hand and the name of some place or other, but are signposts on which is expressed in powerfully resounding words what changes should take place in human thinking, feeling, willing. Such directions from the spiritual world, however, are usually formulated for human beings in a remarkable manner and have been so in all epochs, namely in a kind of riddle language. One has to make a certain kind of effort to get to the bottom of the riddle. In order that one of these signposts in the riddle language may become a real impulse for life, a great deal of what one knows has to be brought together. We can find at the present time in what I will call the astral light, something suited to our immediate present and the near future, can find directing words that can become impulses for mankind. On the most varied occasions, I might say in the most varied places, something shines toward us if we have the f faculties to behold it that is like a warning, yet has also the quality of a riddle. It calls forth in us the feeling that we should be guided by it, should take it as a strong impulse into our will, into our whole life of soul. What thus shines out to us in the astral light as a spiritual milestone consists approximately of the following words, quote, You form it to your service. You reveal the value of its substance in many of your works. It will only bring you healing when to you is revealed the lofty power of its spirit. Close quote. First of all, there is a challenge to discover what is actually meant. Some sort of impulse is referred to, something which is already present, something known to man, since otherwise one could not reckon on his finding an answer. Quote, repeat again, You form it to your service you reveal the value of its substance in many of your works. Yet it will only bring you healing when to you is revealed the lofty power of its spirit. Close quote. The explanation of these words, which, as has been said, show themselves in the astral light like a directing impulse for human beings, will be the purpose of today's lecture. Let us recall a number of things that I have already elaborated here. Let us recall how the year's course, in its regular sequence through spring, summer, autumn, winter, has a spiritual content. How spiritual occurrences, supersensible occurrences, are revealed in what happens in the course of the year. Just as the human being's supersensible soul and supersensible spirit are revealed in what happens in his bodily life between birth and death. Let us reflect 
how in what appears outwardly during the year's course, in winter's snow, spring's sprouting, waxing life, in summer's life of blossoming and autumn's life of ripening and fruiting, how in all this, which discloses itself physically to us, something spiritual is hidden, something spiritual sustains it. And so let us turn our gaze first to what takes place in this yearly course, from spring to summer, and on toward the autumn. In all that the earth reveals, in stone and plant, in all creatures, spiritual beings live. Not merely a general wishy-washy spirituality, but separate spirit beings, nature spirits. These nature spirits enclose themselves, during the winter, in the bosom of the earth. They are breathed in, as it were, by the earth and are within the earth. When spring comes, the earth breathes out, as it were, her spirituality. These nature spirits strive upward. They aspire upward with the forces of springing, sprouting life. They are active in the life which is felt in the light-radiant, sun-warmed air. Within this they stream upward. And as we approach St. John's Day and the time of midsummer, then in the heights above us, if we look up to them, we have a picture revealed there, embodied in the forms of clouds, embodied mightily in lightning too and thunder, embodied in all the meteoric elements above us, of all that lived in the form of nature spirits during winter in the earth's dark bosom. During winter we must look down to the earth and feel or behold how, hidden beneath the covering of snow, nature spirits are working, so that out of winter shall come spring again and summer from the productive earth. But if in summer we look down to the earth, then it seems impoverished by the loss of those nature spirits. They have gone out into the wide universe have united themselves with the cloud structures and everything that human sight encounters in the heights above. In all the ways I have mentioned, they have streamed up to the heights and have taken with them in an extremely rarefied form an extremely fine dilution, what manifests outwardly as crude and lifeless sulfur. And in fact these nature spirits, as they billow and surge in cloud forms, and the like during summer's height, weave and live preeminently in the sulphur that is then present there in an extraordinarily subtle way in the heights of the earthly realm. If we could speed through these high reaches of our earthly world during the height of summer with a sort of tasting-feeling sense, we should be aware of a sulphurous taste and even of a sulphurous smell though in an extraordinarily dilute, subtle, and intimate form. What develops up there, however, under the influence of the sun's warmth and light, is akin to the process that goes on in the human organism when cravings, wishes, emotions, and so on come welling up. Anyone who has the faculty for beholding and feeling such things knows that the nature spirits in the heights during midsummer live in an element which is as much saturated with desire as is the desire life that is bound up with the animal nature of man, that animal part of man wherein he too is sulfurized, is permeated with sulfur 
in a very diluted form. We see, as it were, man's lower aspect, that which is animalized in him, arching in natural formation above us at the height of summer, filled with the life of nature spirits. What we thus recognize in its sulfurous quality, when it weaves and lives in human nature, we call the aramonic. In it, the aramonic actually lives. So we can also say, when in high summertime we turn spiritual vision toward the heights, then the aramonic is revealed to us in the cosmic sulfurous desires. So if we think of man's interconnection with this whole world process, we must say to ourselves, the earth takes up in winter what exists in us as our lower nature and spreads over it crystalline snow. And in so doing, the earth receives the aramonic from it. When in high summer the aramonic is free, it works as cosmic desires out in the wide spaces of the world. It is indeed subject to laws which proceed from the planetary neighbors of the earth and are effective on them. And now we see how against this aramonic desire element, against this animal desire nature of man, turned inside out, as it were, in the cosmos, an opposing force is present. The force which brings the human being into subjection through his emotions, dragging him down below the human to the animal level, and is revealed in full summer, high above us. Against this a counterforce is provided in the cosmos. This counterforce is seen in those remarkable phenomena which from time to time fall to the earth as products of the cosmos and contain meteoric iron. If you look at a piece of meteoric iron, you have in it a remarkable witness of the iron dispersed in the cosmos. The shooting stars, which come so frequently in August and, as it were, stimulate the activity of meteoric iron, reveal this counterforce of nature, acting against the desire element, which is present there at that time. And in this cosmic iron, condensed to meteoric stones, we have the arrows which the cosmos sends out against the animal desire element manifest in it. So we can look with understanding and reverence upon the wisdom-filled guidance of the cosmos. We know, of course, that the human being needs this animal desire nature, precisely because he can only develop the forces that will make him fully human by first overcoming it. And we could not have this desire nature, this animalizing element, if the same animal desire element were not a part also of the cosmos. The sulfur, then the sulfurous aromonic element, is, as it were, one pole out of the cosmos, and the arrows discharged by the cosmos through space to combat this sulfurous element are concentrated in meteoric iron in the meteoric projectiles, so to say, of the universe. Now the human being is a true microcosm, really a little world. Everything that manifests in the great world outside in gigantic and majestic phenomena, such as meteors, manifests also within, in the inward nature of what we are ourselves as physical beings. For the physical being is only an expression, a, a manifestation of our spiritual being. And so in a certain way we bear within ourselves, emanating 
from our lower animal nature, the sulfurous element. We must say to ourselves, this sulfurous aromonic element storms through the human organism, stirs up our desire nature, stirs up our emotions. We feel it within us. We behold it at high summertime in the cosmic mist of desire above our heads. But we also behold how, into this overarching cosmic mist, there shoot the iron arrows of the meteoric phenomena, cleansing and clarifying it, acting as an opposite pole to the animal-like desire nature. For through this shooting in of the meteoric iron arrows from the cosmos, the mist above us, the animal desire of high summer time, is purified. And what takes place in majesty and grandeur out there in the great cosmos goes on continually also in us. We produce tiny iron particles in our blood in combination with other substances. And while on the one hand there pulses through our blood the sulfurizing process, there works against it inwardly, meteorically, as the other pole, the iron inside us, bringing about the same process as is effected outside in the cosmos by the meteoric iron. In our relationship to the cosmos, therefore, we can picture the flashing meteoric element we find there as the counterpart of what within us is a million upon million-fold meteoric flashing forth from the iron in our blood. This frees us, cleansing and clarifying us from the sulfurizing process which is also active in the blood itself. Thus we are inwardly a reflection of the cosmos. In the cosmos this process is accomplished during the height of summer. Man, because he stands within nature as one emancipated from her in regard to time, has continually midsummer as well as the other seasons in himself, just as his former experiences constantly remain with him through memory. Outwardly they have vanished, but inwardly they remain. In the same way, we we retain the macrocosm within us as microcosm. What we thus carry in our physical body, however, we must grasp in soul and spirit, must become able to experience it within ourselves. We must learn to experience this meteoric shooting of the blood iron into the blood sulfur as a freedom or initiative, as the strength of our will. Otherwise it remains at best an animal or vegetative process in us. What precisely constitutes our becoming human beings in soul and spirit is that we grasp the processes which go on in us, such as this iron-sulfur process, with our soul and spirit, that we send the soul and spirit into them as an impulse. When we make a tool or instrument and know how to handle it properly, we are able to perform something by means of it. In the same way, we can make use, through our will, of this iron and sulfur process that works and lives in us when once we know how to handle it. When, as human beings, we can handle and make use of what goes on as living processes within our body. Let us now turn from man once more to the cosmos. What takes place out there in the cosmos is an earnest admonition to us. For the outer meteoric iron process truly brings to mind our inner physical nature. 
This nature, however, can be placed at the service of our inner spiritual being. So now we come to the meaning which has to be ascribed to that writing engraved in astral light, quote, You form it to your service. You reveal the value of its substance in many of your works, close quote. If we look round us at modern life, as it has developed in the course of recent centuries, we can see that the chief feature of this materialistic culture is the use of iron in the realm of earthly life. Look in any direction where our form of civilization has flowered in recent times. It is iron that has planted in the physical world everything which has led to the culmination of this materialistic culture. We look for what it was that in so unparalleled a way has brought people together, has laid down the paths for the various branches of materialistic culture and made them smooth. And everywhere we see it was iron and what can be developed from it. The essence of materialism consists in the idea that everything is matter and spirit is a kind of vaporous result of the activities of matter. But the materialism of mankind in the last four centuries is shown not merely in the fact that people think materialistically. It is manifest also in the way we handle outer things. The cultural materialistic impulses of recent times have led man to make use of iron, while the meteoric iron, which falls from heaven, is treated merely as a rarity more as something one seeks to explain by means of a science that cannot grasp much about it. This meteoric iron, however, which falls to earth from the cosmos, which purifies and disperses the animal-like life, is actually an admonition to us that we should look up from using iron materially for earthly purposes and see what heavenly service iron performs in its meteoric aspect up above us, and more especially within us, for these meteoric processes go on within us all the time. And so the first part of this admonition appears to us shining in astral light, engraved as it were in bronze, quote, O man, you have put iron to your earthly service, you form it to your service, you reveal the value of its substance in many of your works. Yet it will only bring you healing when to you is revealed the lofty power of its spirit. It is not merely that we should look up in our thoughts from the materialistic world conception to a spiritual world conception, but that we should also look up from what we use in the service of material culture to the spiritual and cosmic aspects of what serves us in material form. And so precisely through these words, which have first to be unraveled like a riddle, we are directed to that spiritual being who lives in the universe in the revelation of meteoric phenomena, especially at the height of summer. For at that time the aramonic sulfurizing process, which is otherwise present only within man, becomes a cosmic process. And the meteoric process, the arrows which the cosmos discharges into the animalized cravings in the heights, is a counter-process to it. If we let all this work upon the soul, 
we can feel how truly we are connected with all that surrounds us in the world, and within can feel how our very blood is permeated with soul, saturated with spirit. We feel in it this opposition between the aramonic element and what purifies it, the iron in the blood. We feel the inner meteoric process. We look up with comprehension to what is accomplished outside when cosmic spirit forces send the arrows of iron into the animalized desire world of the cosmos. We feel ourselves entirely bound up with the cosmos and surrendered to it. Precisely in these particular phenomena we can feel entirely surrendered to the cosmos. When one feels all this in full earnestness, then from this feeling there takes form a cosmic imagination. One can indeed do no other than form and picture this cosmic imagination. Animals have a different attitude toward outer nature, being unable to form concepts or ideas of it, but only general impressions whereas a human being forms pictures and ideas. In the same way, when the soul has risen to exact clairvoyance, it is not possible for it to do otherwise when it experiences such things as this, when its feeling turns inwardly toward its own meteoric process and looking outward beholds the rich fullness of life revealed in the cosmic meteor process, then to combine all of this in a comprehensive, inwardly saturated picture form, an imagination which depicts how the human being, the microcosm, is entwined with the macrocosm. Such an imagination is not merely built up out of fantasy. It is a real and true expression of a living process permeating the world and the human being, in this case of a process that lives in the phenomena of the yearly course. The imagination which comes to us through this experience is one that springs out of living together with the natural processes of the year's course from midsummer on toward the end of summer, the beginning of the autumn. From this experience there arises before the soul the living figure of Michael. Out of what I have described to you is revealed the figure of Michael in his fight with the dragon with the animal nature of man, the sulfurizing process. When one understands what is actually going on in these phenomena, then the soul, which takes its own form and origin from the interweaving life forces of the cosmos, simply brings forth the fight of Michael with the dragon. As the outward expression of what is working out in the cosmos in battle with the animalized desire nature, Michael himself appears. But he appears with a sword pointing toward the higher nature of man. And we picture Michael rightly when we find in his pointing sword the iron that has been cosmically smelted and forged. Out of spiritual cloud formations, one might say, the figure of Michael appears to us with positive, searching and directing gaze, his eye like a guiding sign, its gaze sent outward, never drawn back into it himself. And the arm of Michael appears to us in the midst of a sparkling shower of meteor iron, as though this were molten in cosmic desire forces, and fused together again to form the flaming sword of Michael. 
Rightly do we picture Michael, then, quite in accord with reality, when we think of his countenance as woven from the golden light of summer, with a positive gaze directing us outward, like a ray of light from within, which is sent actively out. We picture Michael rightly, when we see his outstretched arm flaming with flashing sprays of meteor iron that fuse together into the sword with which he shows humanity the way from animal nature to man's higher nature, with which he points the way from the summer season when man is most at one with outer nature, is most imbued with nature consciousness, to that other season, the time of autumn, when we can only continue to live united with nature if we share in her dying, in the death she brings on herself. But it would be terrible for the human being only to share with nature as autumn comes, this natural path to death, this self-destruction. When we experience spring, we yield ourselves, if we are holy and fully human, to nature in her sprouting, waxing, flourishing. If we are full human beings, we blossom with each blossom, sprout with each leaf. With every seed we grow ripe ourselves. It is then that we give ourselves over to nature's mounting, springing, sprouting life. For it is then her will to live, and we feel with her this impulse of life. We do well to devote ourselves to nature at this season. But in autumn we cannot unfold such nature consciousness in ourselves. For if we did that one-sidedly, we should have to share in the experience of the paralysis and death which she undergoes. We should not go with her in that direction. In the face of that, we must rather increase our strength. Just as we must experience living nature in our own life forces, so we must set against dying nature, against death, the self. Nature consciousness must be transformed into self-awareness. This is the great and powerful picture given us in the approach of autumn, so that we can read in what happens in the cosmos the admonition. Nature consciousness must change in us into consciousness of self. But for this we need the strength to overcome the inwardly death-bringing quality of animal-like nature with our soul and spirit. For this we are given guidance when we look out into the phenomena of the cosmos. To do this we are guided by what is revealed in the figure of Michael, with his positive gaze and the flaming meteor sword in his right hand. Michael appears to us in his fight with the animalized desire nature. This picture emerges naturally from the life weaving around us. If we wish to paint this whole imagination, we cannot paint it in any humanly arbitrary way. It can be painted only in accordance with what we perceive in the cosmos. And the only way to picture the yellow and red sulfurous element in it, rising into the heights with the elemental spirits, is in the figure of the dragon. So that above the sulfurous dragon whose burning head, as I might call it, is composed of the desire-like process, above this aromanized and sulfurized dragon, we have Michael in the form I have described to you. Whoever understands the world can describe it in imaginations. 
but whoever believes that one can paint the fight of Michael with the dragon in any way one chooses sins against the inner reality of the world. For the interplay of forces in the world assumes particular forms in relation to human beings. None of the great paintings and other works of art in the world have come into existence as arbitrary human expression. If that were so, they would scarcely have continued to appeal to people for centuries, even thousands of years. They have sprung from a real understanding of what weaves and lives out in the cosmos and also within the human being. And when, out of the living and weaving in nature and in man, in their mutual connection, there is created the substance of imaginations, whose very colors, whose very details of mood and form are derived from nature's mysteries and given artistic form, then great genuine works of art arise. Those great works that were created by the seers, that are imitated by the imitators and are embellished by the bunglers with all kinds of frippery, till the real greatness that should emerge from these works as an expression of the creative weaving of the cosmos is no longer recognized. This is what gives these works of art the power to influence humanity through long periods of time. The great artistic motifs of painting and sculpture never would have become what they are had they not been created through true vision of the impulses at work in nature and human life. So we are able to see what appears if Michael and the dragon are painted according to the spiritual understanding of today, for older traditions had to paint it according to their own knowledge. The countenance formed from the golden gleaming of the sun, the gaze positive, outward-looking, the sword of flame shaping itself from the molten meteor iron of the cosmos, and below the dragon who plagues human nature, the dragon who manifests at high summertime, the sulfurous dragon revealed in the continual weaving of flames that rise up and at once fade again. This dragon moving below in his own sulfurous element, taking form as the tormentor of humanity and the opponent of the higher hierarchies, is an image that rightly contrasts with the battling Michael, who compels the meteoric iron to his spiritual service. Here you have an example of how true knowledge passes over into art, must always pass over into art, since abstract concepts cannot encompass the whole of reality. Our times are called upon to grasp just such a picture as this, for the strengthening and awakening of mankind. Therefore one would like to inscribe this picture in particular, this portrayal which is appropriate to our times, of the fight of Michael with the dragon, deep, deep into human souls, into human hearts, so that it may exert its influence in human forces of will and thought in the present time and in the future. And one can know that if a part of mankind were to take this picture in earnest, if a part of mankind were to understand how this picture takes shape from nature itself and from the directive admonitions in the astral light, then to the material use of iron in the last few centuries, especially the 19th century, there would be added a spiritual element penetrated with the meaning and sense of iron. 
Then this picturing would kindle in people the force of soul and spirit, which would enable them to take hold of the purpose of the meteoric iron within them, the iron that shoots into the blood, warring against sulfur. We must learn not to let this process occur only in the subconsciousness, merely shaping our lower nature. We must learn to place this process, this iron process, in the human blood, in the service of the soul and spirit. That is what Michael wills in us. That is what appears to us in the astral light, urging us to celebrate the Michael festival in a worthy way once more at the beginning of autumn. When now we speak of this Michael festival, which should take place with the Eastern Christmas festivals and that of St. John, it must truly not be understood to mean that a merely external celebration is called for. We can only celebrate such a festival when we know how to link it with something really significant. The festival of Christmas has not arisen through any arbitrary, convenient resolve, but because it is linked with the birth of Christ Jesus. The Easter festival is linked with the mystery of Golgotha. These are very important events in the history of mankind. The Michael festival must also be linked with a great and sustaining inner human experience, with that inner force which summons us to develop consciousness of self out of nature consciousness, through the strength of our thoughts and our strength of will, so that we may be able to master the meteoric iron process in our blood, the opponent of the sulfurizing process. To be sure, sulfur and iron have flowed in human blood ever since there was a human race. What occurs between sulfur and iron determines the unconscious nature of man, but it must be lifted into consciousness. We must learn to know this process as the expression of the inner conflict of Michael with the dragon. We must learn to raise this process into consciousness. Then the Michael festival may be linked with it. But it must first be fully understood, inwardly, deeply understood. Then it will be possible to celebrate the Michael festival in the way a festival drawn from the cosmos can be celebrated by human beings. Then we shall have the knowledge which is really able to see something in iron other than what the chemist of today or the mechanic sees in it. Then we shall have what teaches us how to take in hand the iron in our own organism, in our inner human nature. Then we shall have the majestic picture of Michael in battle with the sulfurous dragon, of Michael with the flaming sword of iron, as an inspiring impulse for what we must become if we are to develop the forces of our evolution for progress and not for decline. This it is which shows itself to us as an admonition from the spiritual world, engraved in letters that form enigmatic words, which can, however, be understood precisely out of the conditions of our present time. Quote, o man, you form it to your service. You reveal the value of its substance in many of your works. Yet it will only bring you healing when to you is revealed the lofty power of its spirit. Close quote. That is iron. 
Let us learn to know iron, and equally all other substances, not merely in terms of material value. Let us learn to know them in their majestic spirit power. Then there will be human progress once again, progress for the earth, and that is what we must will if we want to be truly human. The end of Lecture 23